This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is George McHale. George is a co-founder of the new organization, Church Clarity, as well as the director of strategic partnerships and innovation at the Riverside Church in New York City. In this conversation, we talk about George's life and the multiple events and experiences that culminated in his work through Church Clarity. Those events include the election of Trump, working for the affirmation of LGBTQ people in a non-denominational church, as well as seeing how ambiguity hurts ambiguity in church policies, hurt people at risk the most. Church Clarity is a new organization that seeks to score churches based on their publicly available statements listed on their public websites in an effort to allow possible churchgoers to determine a church's stance on LGBTQ members as either affirming or non-affirming. This is provided through five scores, verified clear, clear, unclear, undisclosed, or actively discerning, as well as stipulating whether those policies are affirming or non-affirming stances. Head on over to churchclarity.org to learn more. Now, full disclosure, I am an advocate for Church Clarity. I think their work is very important and very good. Um, So that is, (laughs) I'll go ahead and mention that at the top, and I also mention it in the interview, but um, this interview itself gives a lot of wonderful context into why George in particular is, um, is motivated to do this sort of work. Now, if you enjoy the work of this show, you can support it via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod, as well as by rating and, view- rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or in the Apple Podcasts app on your phone or iPad. I still j- just got less than 50 reviews here in the U.S. store, and I'd love to get that above 50 or 60 before the end of the year, so that would be a great free Christmas present that you can give me. <laughs> Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at BRChastain and can follow the show on Twitter at Pod. Also, you can search for Exvangelical on the Facebook, group, on, on the Facebook <laughs> to find the closed Facebook group. As of this week, we have over 1,300 members, which is insane. There's a lot of great discussion happening in there. Uh, check it out. Um, find out what the term Beverly means. <laughs> Join the group. Um, and if you have any other comments or questions about the show, you can always email me at contact at exvangelicalpodcast.com. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Exvangelical. I have with me this week George McHale. He is the Director of Strategic Partnership and Innovation at the Riverside Church in New York City, as well as the co-founder of the newly launched website, Church Clarity. Welcome to the show, George. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, likewise. So we actually have a lot that we could talk about, um, but I'd like to definitely get and provide a little bit of background for our listeners as far as you know where you're coming from which, um, and really what your background is. Um, so <laughs> I know that's an open question, but like if we could sort of just, if you could give us a sense of, you know, how you grew up and, um, yeah, let's just start there. Sure. 
Yeah, so um, I was born in Cairo, Egypt, um, and when I was four years old, my family decided to immigrate to the U.S. Um, we we landed in Des Moines, Iowa, of all places, <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of fo- following around other family. Ended up uh, in the Seattle area, which is basically where I grew up uh, for mm-hmm. most most of my life. Um, in a little, uh, uh, well, actually, I grew up in Everett with my. Uh, when I was living with my parents and then I grew up in a little suburb called Bothell after that. So, um, as of April of this year, moved to New York city. So been, uh, yeah, been a little bit of everywhere all over. (laughs) Yeah. So what, um, what was the situation that, that compelled your parents to want to emigrate to the U S yeah. So, um, so I was born into a Coptic Orthodox, uh, Christian family. So, um, so in Egypt, basically 90% of the population is Muslim, 10% is Christian. So of that uh, group of 10%, most are Coptic Orthodox. Um, and I think that's, that's part of it. it it's hard to be, um, a religious minority in, mm-hmm. um, in, in Egypt and, uh, you know, economic conditions were, were such where it was pursuing the American dream, really. I mean, my parents are sort of the epitome of that story. So coming to America was very much about creating a, a, a different kind of life for, for me and my two sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And was that your, what was your experience like as a, really as a, as a young child and the way you sort of observed, um, observed life in the U S as an immigrant family and as a, a young immigrant child in first Iowa and then later in Washington. Yeah. Um, one of my earliest memories I think is, uh, when we were still in Iowa, so I'm probably four, four and a half, something like that. And, um, I remember my dad being like frustrated with me because I didn't want to go outside and play with this little girl, um, who wanted, who was like knocking on our door wanted wanted me to come outside and play. And, uh, my, my thing was, I don't want to, I don't want to go outside cause I don't know English. And, uh, I, I was like embarrassed by that. And, and my dad getting really mad. Like if you don't learn English, you know, how are you going to, we're not going to, how are you going to make it here basically? Um, so that's my earliest memory of, of sort of adjusting to life in America and what it meant to be sort of have parents who are not a part of the culture here and watching them try to assimilate and, and, and doing it really well. You know, my parents, mm-hmm. um, worked really, really hard. They taught me everything about hard work. My dad at one point worked, um, worked three jobs. Wow. One of, one of them was the graveyard shift at Jack in the box. Uh, my mom worked two jobs and, and basically took care of the kids. Um, so yeah, just watching them learn English and make friends and, and, and adjust was, um, always something I admired, like, like hard work really does. Uh, pay off. And, and like I said, they live the American dream. They, they figured out how to hustle, how to, how to work for the federal government. Eventually, uh, my dad works at DSHS. And so does my mom. So, um, so yeah, they're really inspiring people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot to overcome <laughs> moving, <laughs> moving to a new, moving to a new country and not knowing the language. Like that's, that's, and that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So, was there, as part of that, did you, did you witness, you know, the, the unkind side of America to put it very lightly, the sort of racist side of America, not sort of, that's just me being a, a lazy orator, the like 
Um, was that, did you see that exhibited early too? Or was there, I mean, the sort of patterns that, that people of color and immigrants face throughout their lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely experienced it. I would say that um, there's there's a couple different phases of this, right? So there's uh, the first time sort of someone calls you a name on the playground or like, so like, so like growing up in elementary school, it would have been like hearing sand nigger or um, towel head or um, people being like, your, your dad probably drives a, a, a taxi or runs a 7-Eleven. Like I'd hear all that as a, as a kid. Um, and knowing that you're different, like you, you learn that pretty, pretty early on. And so you, you kind of try to figure out how the game works, right? How do you, how do you adjust? How do you make these adjustments? Cause no one wants to be the kid that's, that's being made fun of regardless. Right. But, um, there is something specific about like being like teased in front of peers over things you can't control, um, like your the color of your skin or where you, where you came from or, mm-hmm. um, whatever it is. So you learn to adjust. Um, and so experiencing that in the early, early ages was, was more just about like, uh, something, it was like a condition that you just have to kind of overcome. Like you have to assimilate, you have to blend in and you, you figure that out. Um, and then the second phase was really post nine 11, I think, um, after nine 11, every, I mean, everything changed. We know that, um, for, for Muslims, especially, uh, but also for, for Christians who, or, or anyone with brown skin, really, um, anyone who could be associated with, um, uh, with what happened, I think essentially, which was a, a new narrative got crafted that was, that had been being crafted before, even before nine 11, but nine 11 really cemented this idea that, uh, the middle East and Muslims specifically are terrorists and, and getting, um, accused of, of that sort of the suspicion, uh, post nine 11, uh, you know, the security lines at the airport, um, all that kind of stuff is, um, what comes to mind most, um, and then you have the post-Trump uh, America, where, uh, in in a strange way, the the day after the election, you wake up feeling like the day after 9/11 in some ways, like oh, this is not what I thought it was, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's I don't want to equate the two. Obviously, there's the tragic loss of life, 9/11, and um, and just the. Um, like human just tragedy that we continue to, to create for one another in this world yeah. uh, is very, di- very different than um, what happened uh, post election. But what I'm pointing to is just the realization that you're not, you're not really welcome. You're not as welcome as you thought you were. How about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. That was like a key turning point. Totally. And yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. And, and seeing that the, I understand you're not saying it that the two are equivalent, like equal in that sort of way, but that they are both tragic events and <laughs> uh, and were like a sea change in the sort of behavior and uh, attitude towards mm-hmm. people of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, in light. Um, in, in light of this, were, were the spaces that you found, you and your family found you in, um, found yourselves in, sorry, um, were they predominantly white spaces as well? Like just primarily people, uh, white people in your neighborhoods and in your schools and that sort of stuff? 
Um, yeah, I mean, for most of my life, mm-hmm. he, I would say so. I mean, really until I moved to New York, yeah, any suburb in America I mean, is going to be predominantly white. And, um, you know, I think as immigrants, that's like, we know that <laughs> it's, it's what we sign up for, right. At some level that, um, we're, we're, we're moving to America and, um, there's this, I think, especially right now in our conversations around race, specifically anytime, um, Anytime the, the term white is brought up, it, it always um, there's there's this defensiveness that that comes up around it. That's really strange to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so even even that question is like, well, yeah, I mean, of course, there's white people everywhere. It's America. Like um, and especially like in, in what would it, what would have been 1990, 1991 ish. Um, uh, the country was was less racially diverse than it is today. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's always been, um, it's always been that I would say the exception is in the Coptic Orthodox Christian community that, uh, that we were a part of. And, uh, so, so in Washington growing up to this, going to this church every Sunday I'd go, I was, I was a deacon, like my dad's like pretty hardcore, uh, like church every Sunday we'd sit, like, we would have like Bible studies as a family, mm-hmm. uh, d- during the week, stuff like that. Uh, but, but the, the Coptic Christian community was predominantly the uh, Egyptian immigrant community in that area as well. So mm-hmm. that would be really the exception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm filtering my questions like sort of through in that sort of lens, like I'm <laughs> trying to, um, you know, go for what might be a sort of <laughs> obvious, obvious fact. Uh, no, no, as, no, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's how we talk. And I, right. I, don't think it, I, don't think yeah. it, I don't think there's a problem with it. I think it's just, it's just always interesting. Like, especially in conversations like this, where we're trying to like get to know each other and stuff, how, right. how we ask questions, how we answer them, um, reveals, reveals a, a lot about, um, where we're at, you know, and yeah. it's just super interesting. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. And you mentioned that it, that it, it seemed like strange to you. Strange is, is how you described like the sort of mentioning of, um, of whiteness and, and of white people and how they relate to other people as a, like a social group. Um, mm-hmm. how, how does it sort of, how could you elaborate on that and yeah, totally. what you mean by, by how it feels strange? Yeah. Um, I think a couple things. One, I've noticed it a lot more in, in the post Trump part of the story, right? Sure. Um, yeah. there is understandably a awareness of like, um, sort of the, the underlying racism inherent in electing someone like Trump. I think people get that at some level, right? So, mm-hmm. so white people, white people in general, um, when you talk about it now, it's, um, it, it, it seems like there's an immediate, um, defensiveness. And, and I think what's strange is, um, how just talking about race, when you're, even when we're talking about it, just as a matter of fact, right? Like I'm a Brown person you're a white person. There's black people in the world. Uh, mm. white people in particular are like, well, you can't say that. And it's, it's the whole colorblindness theory and all that kind of stuff. But, um, what I'm pointing to is like where whiteness in general is, um, is unique. And I think we need to figure out how we can talk about it better because it does us no good if, um, if the mere mention of it already automatically puts up people's defenses, you know? You did mention though, just to sort of segue from from you said that like one of the spaces where, um, where there 
was these sort of Coptic spaces, and those those were different types of spaces, and that was also a religious space. Um, so what was that part of the formation uh, for you just growing up as far as you said that you went to church every Sunday because that was what your your dad was very mm-hmm. very committed to that sort of <laughs> attendance and everything how did yeah. how did you sort of um how did that sort of religious environment shape you and did you how did you respond to it back when you were a kid mm. yep so um so yeah going to church every week i hated i hated going to church for the most part um but there was always a part of me that knew there was there's something there. There's something valuable there. There's like, um, however you talk about, you know, your first God encounter of like, okay, there's definitely more to this whole living thing than what I can see and feel and touch. Um, but an, an, an aversion to like the structures and the systems and almost, I'm, I'm, I remember that from like my earliest religious experiences. Like, mm-hmm. um, and I wouldn't even say it's, it was, um, uh, organized religion. Like I hate when people use that as the critique, like actually we should be organized. Uh, but, (laughs) but I I think just the prevailing sort of power structures, dynamics, rules, like, um, uh, all of it just, just kind of struck me weird. But, um, but you know, we, we went and I I tried to be a good, like, like deacon, I guess, uh, uh, which is like the Coptic version of like an altar boy basically um Mm -hmm. so so you know wore the full robe and was up there with the priest doing the incense and the symbols and the whole thing so Mm -hmm. um i I remember that meaning a lot to my dad specifically um like uh the day that the day that i was anointed as a a deacon he pointed to uh an old icon that was like of saint george and he's like maybe one day you know you can be a saint um (laughs) so and it was like wow, like this really means a lot to him. Um, yeah. And I, I think I attribute that memory probably to the common thread in my whole story of, of even still being in ministry and finding my way <laughs> into yeah. this as a profession at some, some level. But um, yeah. yeah, that's a profound sort of experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, we all have daddy issues, right? Like and I definitely can point to a couple. I've already pointed to two since we've been talking. Uh, this, this is where my dad had a significant impact on me, you know? Um, but I think the Coptic church, the other thing, um, that I would observe is what ended up really leading to me exiting was my desire to assimilate and and to, um, to fit into my new group of friends that I was making at school. You know, it was the one part of me that was still like different, Mm -hmm. you know, that people could point to and be like, well, see, you're not, kind of one of us. Um, and when I say one of us, just to be specific, I'm talking about being, uh, being a white kid, right? Like I wanted to be a white kid, like all of my white friends. Um, and I think that's natural, right. In that, um, uh, like growing up in an environment where you're, you're sort of the outsider, you're, you're going to try to minimize those outsider things. So leaving the Coptic church, I wouldn't have described it this way back then, but, um, looking back, it's, it's clear that, that was a, that was a part of my journey for sure. Yeah. So was that were your kid were your friends like going to mega churches or something similar as far as like the whole youth group scene and, yeah. <laughs> and all yeah. that stuff? Okay, it was all yeah. about it was all about young life, right? So yeah. young life. Uh, I started noticing my friends were going to that, so I'd go to club, um, and I started going to the, the church that was the sort of the young life church. It was a four square church, 
um, my sister um, was sort of the one who who took the lead because it was a big deal leaving the Orthodox Church. Oh, like yeah. my, my parents, uh, my dad was not having it. Um, and actually it was my, my mom interest, interestingly who stepped in and said, look, if the, cause me and my sisters were basically like, we're out, we're going to go, we're following my one sister at the, we're going to go where our friends are going. Cause the young wife and uh, my mom is the one who stepped in and said, look, as long as they're going to church, as long as they're following God, it's fine. And so my dad dropped it and we started going, my, my parents to this day still go to the Coptic church and um, my sisters were like, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the young life, um, was that, so I, I had some friends who similarly like were, grew up Catholic and then like got plugged in a youth group and then either, you know, when they didn't get confirmed in the Catholic church, that was like huge deal. Um, because that is the thing you do like in high school, uh, when you're Catholic is you get confirmed and you get your new, you know, confirmation name and all those things that come with that. Um, but did Young Life did Young Life itself was that something that they um and I don't I don't know this because I like that was one part of my high school that I missed. I didn't do Young Life. It was present at my high school, but it, I I didn't do it. Was it was that something that that Young Life itself sort of either encouraged or uh yeah, let's just say encouraged <laughs> as far as like um embracing like that sort of evangelical type of faith yeah. and youth group over um other forms of christianity definitely yeah i mean it was all about salvation and all about getting you to that camp or getting you to that moment where you said the sinner's prayer and you know boom you're now going to heaven um and you know for the most part i bought that i was that was what in my you know 14 year old mind at the time uh was attractive to evangelicalism at the time was this whole idea of being having a personal relationship with Jesus. That was, that was very compelling um, for someone who had a background of, you know, God is like way too big to like want to have anything to do with me. Um, it's a really attractive thing about mm-hmm. evangelicalism. So um, it's all about, I mean, I got saved so many times in high school. <laughs> like, I did like every altar call. Yeah. over and over again like just to make sure you know it's not going it's 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 scary in the picture that they paint but the carrot is uh is very attractive i'm like oh god like anytime i want like jesus is gonna be right there right next to me yeah. so um yeah i was very into that <laughs> <laughs> so within after high school um you know you've mentioned that you, like you're now you're in ministry and you have been in ministry for a while um was that something you you've always done or like after high school, um, did you, what, what came next for you after that? Yeah. Um, so no, I did not, was not always in ministry, did not see this coming. Um, I, I mean, ever since I was little, I was kind of like a serial entrepreneur. Like again, my dad like taught me hustle, like just work hard and just go. And so Mm -hmm. as early as I can remember, I was like trying to get a job. My first job was, uh, uh, Burger King. And I ran the drive-through, and I was fantastic at it. I might add, um, that was that was one of the hardest jobs I ever had, actually. Um, but working through, like, how to um, run a business. I started a business when I was like 15, selling shoes on the internet. 
Uh, wow. It's called rare rare footwear.com. It was, you know, we sold knockoff Jordans um, and uh, air force <laughs> ones uh, with, with like Gucci print and Burberry uh, imported from Hong Kong. It was fantastic. But um, so I was always like just, just on my, on my hustle, on the grind, like trying to figure mm-hmm. out what's next, trying to think yeah. of new ideas. Um, and so I was never really into school. Um, I just, I didn't fit in the, in the box. I didn't, there was no like degree that I wanted to go after that was like, Oh, I could do this with my life. Yeah. I just always, I guess, wanted that to maintain that freedom and that ability to like act on whatever idea uh, I had next. Um, mm-hmm. so whatever you, whatever you call that, that's how my, my, my brain works. It's like, I'm always <laughs> trying to think of like, how do we, how do we fix this? Um, yeah. and so, um, so yeah, after high school, barely graduated, um, but did, uh, and then went to community college for like a quarter. And then I was like, nah, <laughs> not doing, not, not going to do that. Um, so left, uh, community college and just entered the business world. So, um, got a job at a title and escrow company in Seattle area. Um, did that for like a year and then I got into the mortgage business, which is where like I started my career for, for real. I worked mm-hmm. at, um, at Wells Fargo home mortgage for like six years. Um, did really well, made a lot of money. Um, you know, bought the vacation home, bought the brand new bands, bought the wife, the brand new Tahoe. Uh, like was, we were like killing it for a while. We were really young, like, um, uh, made more money than we, than we knew what to do with. And, um, you know, the, the company started grooming me to be like a executive someday. Um, and I was just like, watching what that was doing to my life. Like, um, we just had, uh, our first kid and, uh, again, just like money, hand over fist, make all the vacations, whatever we wanted to do. But at the same time, like it was, it was pretty empty. Um, it was not, it didn't have any purpose. It didn't have any meaning other than I woke up every morning, like, okay, how am I going to like get that next bigger paycheck? Mm-hmm. Uh, and like all of my goals were just all about, I'm just going to make more money, 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 money. Um, and I actually remember a pretty distinct, um, like God talking to you moment, mm-hmm. uh, is how I would have described it then. Uh, it wasn't audible or anything, but just like a really like moment of, of like real clarity of, uh, what am I doing with my life? Where I felt like, felt like the impression I had was, um, you're going to, you're going to hate money one day. Just like really, really strong, that word of like, whoa. And it was right after I had like just earned my biggest paycheck, uh, hit my goal, and I was like, I gotta, this is, I gotta be done. I'm like, I'm like looking at the next promotion, the next promotion, climbing the, the corporate ladder. Like, I don't want that. I'm, I'm seeing what my higher ups are doing in their lives, and I'm like, eh, I don't want to do that. So that this was all happening at the time ta- at a time when um, the church that we were going to East Lake in, in the Seattle area was like blowing up out of control. There were like probably five, five years old at this time and 5,000 people on a Sunday, um, oh, wow. we like bursting at the seams. Um, and I love this church evangelical, uh, sort of in its theology at that point, but, um, always pushing the envelope, right? East like was kind of known as like the party church in town. And <laughs> like, we would like cancel Sundays from time to time and watch the Seahawks playoff games or whatever. Um, so I love that. Um, and we, uh, we, we just made an announcement as a church that we were going to add multiple locations because we, we were growing so fast. Um, 
And uh, I had become pretty good friends with Ryan Meeks, the, the lead pastor. And uh, he had for a couple of years been trying to get me to come work for him. Uh, but I was always like, no, that sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> like, I don't want to not a, not a I'm not a pastor. Uh, yeah. You can't you can't afford me. Like, there's no way you can pay me what Wells Fargo is paying me. Uh, it just hadn't I hadn't had that sort of moment of crisis where I was like, what am I doing with my life yet? Mm. Uh, but then after that happened, and after they announced that we were going multi-site, those two things kind of happened around the same time. Uh, and it was the first time that I like I started to see how my I guess skill set could uh, fit into the church world of like. Oh, maybe I could help. I could maybe help with that, like figuring out how to create a multi-site system. That, uh, and and I love my church, and I'm very committed there. So, shit, why not? Let's take a pay cut. Let's do this. So, uh, so we did. So we we uh, left Wells Fargo. It was crazy. It's crazy to even think about. Um, <laughs> and uh, sold the car, sold the vacation house. You know, went from like. The previous year's W two was like half a million dollars to like a, a five figure salary overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was wild, and, and the only reason I even like I throw, throw out numbers is because I don't make that anymore. First of all, <laughs> so I'm not like I make I make so much money. It's like no, 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 I used to make so much money. I don't. Make <laughs> so, um, but I think it's important to as I as I reflect at least. It's like whoa, that was crazy. Like what? What was that? Who does that? Mm-hmm. Um, I, but we were just, my wife's phenomenal. I mean, she's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's uh, sell all the stuff and, and, you know, let's live for, for something that's meaningful um, instead of, instead of just money. So yeah, that's how I got into ministry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's quite the, that's quite the route to get there. <laughs> it's one way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so once you were there, once you were in Eastlake, you, this, your, your primary, one of your primary responsibilities was helping to enable this multi-site location and, and all of that. Like that was, that was your, one of your, one of your key things. Yep. So okay. I was brought on actually, that was my main thing. I was brought on as the multi-site director. Okay. So I, I was tasked with building out an entire multi-site infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, within a few, within a few months I was brought onto the leadership team. Um, and then, uh, I think within a year, uh, or two, maybe, uh, I was the executive pastor and that's sort of the role that I played there for most of my tenure there. So, and um, what does that entail? Like, I think in, in certain churches in large, like non-denominational churches, like that's a common term, but it can, the responsibilities, you know, can vary. So what, yeah. what was that like at Eastlake? Yeah. So Eastlake is a, um, pretty standard, you know, non-denominational, um, evangelical church or, or was back then. And, um, so in our context, I was basically, it was, it was me and Ryan's the senior pastor, I'm the executive pastor. So I was sort of his right hand man. Um, mm-hmm. I ran the staff, I ran the church. He did the preaching, did the public speaking, did the leadership, uh, vision casting, uh, him and I would like collaborate on things a lot. A lot of our decisions were made between the two of us. Uh, there was, there was a season where it was, it was more than just the two of us where we had an entire team, but for, um, for a lot of it, it was just me and Ryan. And then, um, towards the end, it was also a, a team of people that, 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 made decisions. So, but I was the executive pastor for, for a long period of time. And, um, I, lo- I loved it. It was a great role. And, um, I, we got to do a lot of fun things and we had a lot of freedom and, um, yeah, it was a, it was a good time. It was a really good time. East Lake was really, really great to us. It's a phenomenal church. Their story's crazy. Um, 
you know, they're, uh, they've been, they've been through quite, quite a lot and they're still, they're still standing. So it's a really inspiring uh, place to know about. Mm-hmm. One of the main things that's known about Eastlake is this sort of part of the history that is relevant to, to what you're working on now, um, which we'll get to in a little bit. But part of that is it's famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, <laughs> for, for moving to an affirming stance in regards to LGBTQ people of faith. Um, mm-hmm. And you were there during that tenure, correct? Like that was part, yep. of, part of your time. So mm-hmm. could you... Um, could you sort of talk about that and how that came about and what, um, and really what, let's just sort of start with how it came about and then I'll ask a, a few other questions after that. Yeah. So, um, so Ryan was, Ryan is one of the best leaders I know still to this day. And, um, he's the type of leader who's always asking questions, which I think is what makes a phenomenal leader. He's always, he's always curious about, um, why things are the way that they are. And so um, in the evangelical world, what that means is he sort of kind of gets um, labeled the, <laughs> the rebel or, you know, the heretic or, or whatever. And so hmm. we, that was, that was all, that was always present. I mean, we're talking about Seattle uh, in the days where like Mark Driscoll sort of uh, was, was running the show in the city and he was sort of the, the force to be reckoned with in, in church. Hmm. Um, so at our peak, 2013, I would say this, the evangelical scene in Seattle was Eastlake, Mars Hill, and uh, City Church were kind of the three big players. Uh, there's a couple others, Overlake and, and that kind of thing. But um, for Eastlake, our journey was different because, um, I mean, really, Ryan was always encouraging us to keep an open mind, ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And on LGBTQ inclusion specifically, that was one he always reading about always you know giving me books to read giving the leadership team books to read giving us having staff conversations about uh you know why things are the way that they are in the church and why we why we as staff people who a lot of us grew up in the church why we believe what we believe and so um that was a, a pretty long process and uh in the season that it was me and him um as uh, the leadership team, essentially, we traveled a lot. We met a lot of people whose books we were reading. Um, I mean, first uh, encounter, I remember my first encounter with guys like uh, Carl Medeiros, who wrote a great book, Speaking of Jesus, and uh, guys like Greg Boyd and Bruxy Cavey, who we encountered on our journey, who were uh, really instrumental mm. in uh, helping us see things just slightly differently than what we were told. Um, and so in 2014, um, we were beginning to really start changing the nature of the, of the church in general. We started, uh, incorporating more of a liturgical, uh, evangelical Sunday experience, which is hilarious because, um, all that meant was we added communion, which is very, <laughs> very controversial in some sort, um, and candle lighting. So we have a candle station where if you wanted to light a candle as a symbol of prayer, for yourself or for another is what we'd say, then we encourage people to do that. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how many people just lost their shit over just that over candles. Like that's where's, where are candles in the Bible? Some people would say, and, uh, and people would leave <laughs> over that. But that was basically what 2014 was, was we were going to start really rolling out some of the things that were informing our theology and shaping, um, 
how we were leading and, and, and how we were, we were thinking. And so, um, in that year, we also brought out, uh, Chris and Felina Hewitt's from the gravity center. Um, and we started exploring <clears throat> sort of the contemplative tradition. Um, we brought out Carl Medeiros to talk about, uh, he did a sermon series called ISIS, Islam and Jesus, which was a real crowd pleaser, um, <laughs> for a lot of evangelicals. Um, and then towards the end of the year, we started talking about, uh, this series called no filter, where we talked about just the hermeneutics of how you, how you even read the Bible. Why do we read the Bible the way that we read it? And that one was where we lost a lot of, that was the first Exodus of, uh, East Lake. So a lot of people were like uncomfortable with that, but I mean, I say a lot and relative to what's coming next, it actually wasn't that many people. So by this, by this time, you know, we had probably, uh, settled in at a number of about 3,500 on a Sunday, maybe. So gradual sort of, uh, Exodus in 2014, but then in, in, uh, 2015, January, 2015 time magazine, um, article came out, um, how evangelicals are, are changing their mind is what it was called. And uh, it's a story, great story by Elizabeth Diaz at time, uh, who had called, uh, interestingly enough, randomly enough, called Ryan when him and I were in New York together on a trip, uh, supporting charity water. And, uh, <laughs> it was the weirdest trip now that I look back on it and, and to see where things have, have come. But, um, she called on that trip. I remember Ryan taking the call and it was like just so intense because we hadn't announced anything publicly. We didn't know really how things were going to shake out. We just knew that something needed to change at East Lake at this point. Like we knew that we weren't being clear on our policies. We knew that, um, people didn't know sort of where we were at and uh and we didn't exactly know how we kept using the phrase bring people along we want to bring people along we want them to know how we arrived here and why this makes theological biblical sense and so we were in that stage and in new york um this was a trip that our friend doug paget uh he met us in new york and, and we met up with him and he introduced us to a bunch of his his christian friends including the reverend dr amy butler of riverside church um, and it was on that trip where, where I was my first ever encountered Riverside and met Amy and, uh, toured the, the, the whole facility and, um, just remember being like, what the hell is this? All right. Cause <laughs> I grew up Coptic and then, and then evangelical and I'm like, there's this whole other world out here. Like, mm-hmm. and then uh, just being super curious about it, like going home and reading about it and being like, this is just fascinating. Um, so that was 2014. Uh, so January 2015, to go back to your question, is when the Time article came out. Mm. January 25th, we made a, a statement of full inclusion. Ryan did a beautiful, beautiful job of um, announcing, here's where we're at, here's why. Um, my favorite part of that whole talk, and I would encourage anyone to, to go and, and watch it, it's on Eastlake's website, um, is that he owns it, right? He owns uh, what we had been doing. And, uh, and that is perpetuating a system that is very oppressive to, uh, specifically to LGBTQ people in this instance. But, um, I mean, the evangelical system is pretty oppressive in many ways, but, um, but it was just great because he, I think, again, owned it. He modeled beautiful leadership and apologized for sort of our, our part in it. Um, but that was really the beginning of the, the mass exodus, the real exodus when, when people, just left in droves. I mean, overnight we dropped, uh, in, by about 40%, wow. um, 42% in giving the giving trend literally overnight, um, was, was that severe. 
we had to figure out how to go from a, uh, I think we had seven locations at that time. We were just under an $8 million a year budget to what we were projecting was going to be a lot less than that. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a major, uh, yeah, that's a major loss of both <laughs> attendees and, and funds. Wow. Um, yeah. and it was, and I mean, there was no confusion there. That's why people left. Right. I mean, that's like, <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting question. Um, so here's how I would describe it. Uh, people who left and I heard about most of them, certainly the ones who were really like plugged in, um, very few of them would cite their disagreement with our position. Very, very few, like relative to the number of people who left, the number of people who openly cited, I am leaving because I disagree with you on, uh, inclusion was minimal. I mean, really? uh, Hmm. yeah. And I always found that fascinating. Uh, you know, people pointed to things like, so uh, let me back up a little bit. This, the Time Magazine article ended up getting ahead of us. So the story came out before we made our announcement. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was in the water. We had been talking about it. We haven't been having private conversations. But that certainly didn't help. That was not the best way to do it. That was not what, I was, not what we recommend people uh, do. It, like let the media tell people first. Um, but in some ways it was, it, it was helpful in that um, – it was an easy talking point for us to get by because it was like, you know what? You're right. Really, really sorry that that happened that way. The way, the nature of how these things go, um, whatever we were like pre-filming messages. A lot of our locations were video at the time. There was a lot of, a lot of things that we, uh, were able to apologize for, for people who were upset about that. Mm-hmm. But the truth is most people were actually upset because we changed a really core part of, of, uh, their belief system in terms of how we were going to approach it as a church. We also made it clear that you didn't have to agree with us to be there, but that um, there wasn't going to be any sort of hate. There wasn't going to be. We're not going to make a uh, an environment where uh, we tell people, "Hey, you're safe from the front," but then there's people here who are like intent on making it not safe. That's not. That's not going to be okay. Um, and so, so yeah, it was. There was the overnight uh, exodus of people leaving, uh, and then there was the gradual people hanging on, hanging on, trying to make it, but then eventually leaving. So 2015 was, was really difficult in that way. Hmm. Yeah. That's a lot to, that's a lot of change in, in one year for, for a church. Um, now you, you as an executive pastor, you mentioned that like you ran the staff. Um, obviously I know I'm not, (laughs) I'm not intending to see if you had any, I'm not intending to drag anything out in the public that doesn't, that shouldn't be there, but, um, you can certainly answer this question more vaguely or generally, but as far as the way in which this particular part of your church policy as far as like LGBTQ inclusion and, and your theological statements, as well as the sort of impacts that those have in churches. Um, how did that impact your, either your staff or the people that may have worked for the church or volunteered with the church? Because I mean, churches are, are big organizations. You have your official staff, but then you have, you know, obviously droves of volunteers, especially for a large church. Um, so this, this policy 
in addition to those theological things you mentioned, like it does have tangible effects for LGBTQ people, um, to put it mildly. So, um, so how did that, how did that impact the sort of, those sorts of everyday things that do impact LGBTQ people? How did it impact um, those people either before or after? And you can punt on this too if it's not something you want to talk about. Yeah. So, no, that's uh, great. I, I think it's a really good question. And it's an important one, especially as we you know, dive in a little bit deeper into church clarity and why I'm passionate about that. Um, and I mean, the main reason is because, I, again, I was a part of the problem. I mean, prior to uh, becoming inclusive, I had conversations with you know my staff about, um, hey, this a uh, couple wants to lead a, a group, but they're gay. What do we do? And having to say like, sorry, you can't lead a group. Um, and that, that kind of stuff. So, uh, it was never, we were never like overtly like anti-gay or anything like that. Nothing even close enough. Anything we would, uh, um, you, you would have to try really hard to, uh, pin anyone on staff, especially Ryan as, um, like hostile or anything. Uh, so it was, it was the policy level is where the rubber always met the road, right? Is like, didn't have anyone openly gay on our staff. Um, it was nothing, something we avoided. Uh, we didn't like go after it hard. Like, Hey, we're going to talk about this and why we're right about it. You know, like we didn't feel good about it is the point. Like we, we were disintegrated as far as what we, what we believed and, and, uh, the operative reality of our, of our organization. Yeah. Um, and so the uh how it changed did come down to um a person on their staff christina who i had become really good friends with um and uh we had a nanny named ayla who we'd become really good friends with and so the two of them were really like had become family to me and my wife and our kids and um so it was in october of 2014 when again, these conversations are well advanced, like they're in the water, we're talking mm-hmm. about staff, like conversations that Christina would have been a part of where you know where this thing's headed, right? Um, but even still, in October, uh, she um, came out to me and my wife. Uh, it was a Saturday, Saturday night, they came out to us um, before anyone else and just, just terrified through tears um, because like I'm her, one of her best friends, but also like, her boss's boss. Right. And so it was a Saturday night. She sings for us. Um, and so she was literally crying, thinking I was going to fire her on the spot. Um, and that she wouldn't be able to sing the next morning, uh, at East Lake. And so that was a, a game changer. I mean, for me, like, wow, Christina doesn't feel safe here. Is she, I mean, she's in the room where we're talking about how much, you know, we love gay people and how, um, how much we've missed this, how, how, uh, how wrong we've been and how we need to do something about it. And like, it's imminent. Right. But she's, she thinks I'm going to fire her. Um, Mm -hmm. it was, yeah, that was a stunning, like wake up call for me personally. Um, and obviously like such an important, um, uh, story to hold with, confidence and not, not, um, you know, I didn't run and tell Ryan the next day, right. I respected their story and what they wanted to do and how they wanted to roll it out. But, um, yeah, just, just being able to say like, yo, I'm not going to fire you. Like, wow. I'm so sorry that you think that. 
uh, was a game changer. And so, um, so yeah, so she, um, she, she felt better after talking to, after talking to me and then slowly started to, um, she came out to Ryan and, and some of our staff and stuff. And so Christina and Ayla's story, um, definitely lit a fire under us. I would say like, um, it, it was like, okay, we got it. We got to deal with this. We got to, we have to, we have to clarify where we're at and, um, and we have to announce it and we, we got to do it soon. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then within a few months, all of that had transpired. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, since you're, you're in this, you're in this evangelical world for a bit longer for your story. Um, at this point, <laughs> Are there other like evangelical gatekeepers that start to denounce your church or, you know, as far as you, you've mentioned how, how your congregation sort of responded to this, but did you face other sorts of blowback from, yeah, I, I, Marcel was probably gone or disintegrating at that point. Right. So like, it was Happened like, a month it, apart. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so all this was was happening around the same time. It was crazy. Okay, yeah, so that that definitely was, you know, that made news everywhere within, you know, Christian circles. Um, But what was, I mean, even apart from that drama that's happening and has its own, uh, (laughs) has its own stuff to deal with, you've got this this sort of exodus. Um, did you also face people like trying to say you're not evangelical, you're not Christian, you're not blah, 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 blah. like all that sort of bullshit that, that people try to rein you in. What, um, how did, how did those people come out of the woodwork? What was the response from, from the church and the church leadership about that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it turned out that a lot of people read the time article. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so yeah, we got, I mean, we got feedback from all over the, all over the world, really. Like it wasn't most, most of the criticism, um, was actually not local. Um, it was people just pissed from everywhere and, uh, you know, prominent, prominent leaders. I don't think there was very many that like came out and like denounced it. There was maybe, I can't even think of any, like off the top of my head who specifically like came out and like denounced Eastlake. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a ton of private conversations of people calling us like, what are you doing? But actually even, even then, um, most of the calls we were getting were like quiet support, right? Like from pastors, at least like really proud of you. Like, Oh, so inspired by what you're doing. And, um, that was actually really fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because that's definitely like a phenomenon people talk about is like secretly affirming pastors. Yeah. They don't have that, um, don't feel free to to make it an official policy right right which is which is strange right and that's a, another part of my story is just sort of observing that um and 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 i think having a sense like an empathy because I, 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 i've been there i understand mm-hmm. what it's like and it and it was hard right um but at the end of the day it's just like i could tell you my worst like story as an evangelical executive pastor of who's like facing criticism for helping lead his church to inclusion. And it wouldn't come close to some of the shit that we do to people in the LGBTQ community, um, like, or, or women in the church or, or people of color in the church. Like it just doesn't even compare. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. my, my, 
my empathy comes from a place of a having having been there and not not seeing it until you're kind of you're kind of out of it. But but b just like recognizing that 2015 was different than now, right? And the world continues to change. And so if we continue to compare like our our current context to how things have happened or how they've progressed. Um, I just don't think we'll, we're going to get anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. We have we have to keep up with the rapid acceleration of of a changing world, and so uh, so I have a sense of urgency that accompanies my empathy, but it doesn't make me less compassionate. Like I actually have a lot of compassion for these guys, but um, I also have a very direct, um, matter of fact approach when I'm having uh, these types of conversations, especially um, as of late. So yeah, yeah. Well, we, I, I feel like we could, we could go several directions, um, with the conversation, even at, at this sort of juncture, um, because there are lots of elements that we still haven't even gotten to. So probably <laughs> no. talking a lot. Oh no, it's perfect. I, I love these conversations and that's the reason why I think they, it's good to do it as a podcast because you've got the, it's a long form medium, so perfect. it works. So, but I, I honestly sort of want to, I'm, I'm just going to give you sort of, there, there are three things and they all, they all overlap. Um, but there are sort of three things that, that I want to make sure we talk about. And each one is really, um, <laughs> sort of meaty, I guess. Um, the, the first being what you mentioned as far as this, uh, this exposure at Riverside to this progressive, branch of Christianity that's completely unrelated and it seems worlds apart from evangelicalism. Then there's Trump and the election and the racism that was brought to the surface by, um, by the Trump phenomenon within evangelicalism and within the culture as a whole. And then um, finally there's, there's of course church clarity that I want to, I, I want to, talk about as well which is connected to these things and there there seems to be a clear like these what we're talking about now is like it seems to be like the roots of your desire for this this totally. um, so anyways those are i mean which are there any any of those that that you think we should sort of address <laughs> first or um yeah. or any that, that you'd like to talk about first um i'm not just because they they all intertwine and they're they all sort of um, they're all part of your story, but yeah. um, they each have plenty to talk about. So. <laughs> That's true. Well, <laughs> let me see if I can like just jog through some of it without skipping over too many important things, uh, because I think sure. we are really leading up to um, how Church Clarity was formed. And, sure. And, and yeah, definitely. Why I'm, why I'm passionate about it. So, so after we made our statement of full inclusion, um, we saw a need to uh, to create a resource around our story because, you know, at the time there really weren't a ton of evangelical churches that were even having this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and I say evangelical and what I mean really is sort of the uh, non-denominational, unaffiliated, mega church, multi-site, like that, that was our orbit. That was like one of my mentors was uh, on the leadership team of Life Church when I was there. Like these are the people we're spending time with, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really the, the world I'm, uh, I'm talking about. So we created this resource called Together in This, which was based on a song that my friend David, who's the uh, music leader there, uh, wrote that was essentially designed to resource churches uh, 
to help them through uh, a journey of, of inclusion. And so um, I really was always passionate about it. It was kind of my, my pet project at East Lake, and I kind of ran with that for a while. And we did a couple events. We brought some some speakers out: Matthew Vines, David Gushy, Steve Chalk. Um, so it was it was great, and it was a lot of it was a lot of fun to kind of see what that could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and but at the same time, the church was you know I was the executive pastor of a church that was now hemorrhaging money and needing to consolidate, losing people. So it was like crisis management all at the same time. Um, and just watching how people were responding was very informative. So on all ends of the spectrum. So you had the people who, you know, were at East Lake before inclusion and after inclusion who would say things like, Oh, I thought we were always, you know, inclusive. Like the change to them was like no big deal, but it was still telling like, wait, what? (laughs) We definitely, we definitely weren't. Um, Mm. like it was almost like people didn't really understand the, the gravity of what just had just happened. Um, and so that was always something I paid attention to. But then, um, once we got through all of that, we kind of stabilized and we're getting ready to like turn the corner and he's like, we've kind of at this point, like we don't identify with evangelicalism. Um, and he's like, still doesn't, I don't think they would call, call themselves evangelical. I don't think they care about (laughs) that. (laughs) Ryan recently, Ryan recently wrote a blog post that was like, why I'm not a Christian anymore kind of a thing. So like, that's their, that's their vibe and they're doing something pretty, pretty unique. Um, but, uh, once we kind of stabilized and settled in was right around the the time that the election happened. And so, um, that was, like I said, even just the whole political season was jarring, um, for, for a lot of people, obviously, um, for, for people of color and sort of the rhetoric again around, around Muslims and immigrants in the middle East, uh, was particularly like, Ooh, that's, this is, again, this feels like, um, the days after following nine 11. Um, and so, so yeah, I was paying attention to that. Right. And so going back to like what we talked about earlier, like, uh, almost waking up to the fact that I was in a predominantly white space. And, and so I think maybe that's even why I was struck by that question earlier. It was like, I hadn't, I wouldn't even have always just like answered that question in the same way. Like, um, and, 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 and what it means to me, right? Like white spaces aren't always bad spaces at all by any stretch. In fact, again, East like was, was a great, was a, is still a great church. And, and I loved the city that I lived in and most, a lot of my friends were white. Um, but I didn't really, um, see that as a, as a problem, um, until Trump was elected and the response of my, of my community was, uh, alarmed, right? They're, they're progressives and everyone was devastated. Like everyone expected Hillary to win. And so there was, there was definite shock and like, Oh my God, I can't believe this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it wasn't, it was for me, at least it was the first time I noticed that it was, it was different. My response was different than, um, than that of my peers. And again, that's not a judgment. That's just the reality. That's how I experienced it. Like I was devastated when it happened. Like, um, I, I didn't know what that meant. Um, and so, yeah, I just remember for a couple of weeks walking around like, wow, like I got to rethink everything about my life basically. Hmm. Um, in a way that's just like, again, what, what am I, what am I trying to do and how I'm, I'm over here and I'm trying to, be like, yo, we need to change the church. The church is broken 
and I've been passionate about togetherness and I'm seeing things like, um, you know, it was earlier that year, 2016, when, um, InterVarsity came out with their, um, position paper and all that kind of stuff. And I was watching how people were, were reacting to that. Like I didn't really, I, I understood sort of the people that were really, really upset about it. Um, but it, I also was confused having been on the inside of a system that wasn't willing to admit what, that they agreed with in university. That, that, that interplay was what I was always fascinated by. Like, wait, we should actually be like, Hey, university, um, most churches agree with you. <laughs> uh, so I wrote this blog post called uh, "University Did the Right Thing," that uh, you know upset people on on both sides of the conversation. Like, how could you say that? But really, my point was, thanks for being clear. I totally disagree. I think your uh, your policy is super harmful. I think a lot of like people are literally going to die because uh, you can't see them uh, as humans a, a lot of times. But I appreciate you articulating with absolute clarity where you're at. I wish churches would do that because what I was starting to point to was this issue of ambiguity being a lot of times more harmful than simply saying like, I think that the Bible says marriage is between one man and one woman. And I don't want to get in like the comparing which one's actually worse ambiguity or uh, exclusion. They're both unhealthy, but uh, ambiguity was one that uh, people weren't really pointing out. We weren't really talking about, Yo, why is that guy being super misleading right now? Um, yeah, and yeah. So I had a unique vantage point, just again based on the fact that I knew how the sausage gets made, you know. Yeah, uh, and I knew what the implications were for being clear, right? I had just I was ex- literally experiencing it, right? Um, and so uh, around that time, Judah Smith, who was the lead pastor of a, a church called City Church, that's like twenty minutes away from Eastlake. Um, did this talk that I didn't know what he was ranting about, but he posted this tweet and it was like a 60 second clip of his message. And he was just going off on Jesus is super inclusive and we need to be just as inclusive as Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, you, any, anything that excludes people, you need to be like against. Right. And I'm watching this clip that my, my buddy sends me, um, like What? What is he? What is he doing right now? Like I know for sure that a month ago my staff just baptized someone, a gay couple that um, had just got turned away at, at City Church. This is like the most misleading message I've ever heard, um, hmm. and I was I was pretty bothered by it. Uh, and I, I tweeted back to him. I was like, "Hey man, um, I just want to clarify. This means that uh, City Church will now baptize, hire, and officiate weddings for same-sex people." Um, something like that. And he didn't write back, obviously. I didn't, you know, whatever. He's Justin Bieber's pastor. I, I, although there's a couple of people claiming to be Justin Bieber's pastor these days. I can't really <laughs> keep, keep up. Is it him or is it Carl? I'm not sure. <laughs> back then, I was pretty convinced it was Judah. Okay. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not, I know it's like funny, but I'm not saying it as a knock. Like that's no, literally right. how, how, how people know him. Like, no, I, 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 I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just true. So, so yeah, he's, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to mess with me on, on Twitter. Um, but what was interesting was he deleted his tweet the next day, um, and then deleted the message off of his website. Um, and so that was weird, right? So, um, so I tried to reach out. I reached out to the church. I emailed like the church office. I was like, 
I wrote, I wrote him this letter, like saying, Hey man, I really think you should clarify like what you meant by that. Cause I think a lot of people might've heard that the wrong way, honestly. And, uh, you have a big following. It was a kind letter. It was like, it wasn't mean. It was, it was direct. It was like, I, I just think you should clarify this. Um, so I sent it to the church office. I said, Hey, I'd love it for if he like got back to me at some point. And they wrote back and they're like, um, yeah, uh, we got your pastor you has your letter and, uh, he'll get back to you within the week. Uh, a couple weeks go by, <laughs> never, heard back, never, never heard back from anyone. Um, and I was, I was pretty bummed about that. Like pretty bothered by why mm. he would write, write back to a, you know, a church in the area, uh, just completely ignore me. Um, and so it was around, all of this was happening around the time. Again, Trump presidency is, is sinking in. I'm like, uh, experiencing more and more like, I guess, discomfort and, um, and, and being looked at weird, being looked at different. Everyone's kind of on edge right after the election. Um, I ended up at, uh, around the, around Christmas time going to this, uh, this holiday party with my, with my buddy out in like the, the countryside, <laughs> uh, which, you know, in hindsight, probably I, I should have known. I remember actually saying to my buddy on the way, like, am I going to be okay at this party? Like we're going way out here. And, uh, he's got a good sense of humor. And he's like, you're going to be fine. You're going to be with me. And I, I, I ended up being fine. But there was this this party goer at this Christmas party who was like older, like a little bit belligerently drunk, um, coming up to me. And I was wearing a, I was wearing a beanie because it was cold. It's like around Christmas. And uh, and he goes, why don't you take that hat off? You look like a fucking terrorist. Like in my face, like over and over again, like super confrontational, very loud. Um, and uh he literally said it like nine times. So just take the hat off. Like you still look like a terrorist. Like even to the point where like, I actually eventually took it off and I was like, there, is that better? And he's like, Holy shit. and he goes, he goes, no, you still look like a terrorist. And, uh, I just remember thinking like, what is this guy's deal? First of all, um, two, like, would this have happened before the election? Because actually, you know, the, this, the periods of my life that I described, like, overt racism as a kid kind of burst out into the rug the days after 9-11 feeling like you know people are a little bit more like you look like osama bin laden kind of shit um and then um now this coming back kind of you know um i was like yikes this is this is not good because that was the that situation was the most like threatened i felt like and, and where i felt like this guy actually thinks i might be a terrorist like he legitimately thinks like he's worried about it that was the first time I felt like that. It was like beyond just joking. It was like, wow, this is bizarre. Yeah. Uh, so did the, I mean, did, was it like a party stopper? I mean, this guy's in your <laughs> face, right? Like what, no. the, what the hell happened with all the other people there? You're at a party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's probably, you know, six or seven people uh, that heard that had to have heard that were sort of in the direct vicinity. It was, a, you know, 50, 60 people at the party, loud music, that kind of stuff. So, if anyone would have done anything, it would have been those, that small group, but no one did. And actually, that was the other thing that I was like, "Wow, I'm sorry." I don't. It's all good. It is what it is, and it's 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 one of those things where you're like, if someone like, especially another white dude, um, could step up right now and shut this down, for me to actually try to sh- try to shut it down, I was doing my pastor thing, and I actually was fine. Like I was, I, was, I got some good like jabs in. You know, I felt good about myself. Like. Why is this? I think I made the guy think actually, 
but mm-hmm. uh, it, it doesn't change the fact that it was one of those experiences that, cha- that changes you, right? Like you're like, whoa, okay, I need to rethink things. And uh, but also just noticing like no one no one said anything. That was weird. Why didn't anyone say anything? That was definitely inappropriate. Um, so that experience was happening around the same time the Judah thing was happening. Um, and I was just in this place where I was like, I don't, I don't think that where I want to go with wanting to be a part of like the the church change, the church reformation, the church sort of dismantling of oppressive structures within the church. Um, it it was pretty clear at that point that that wasn't the road that Eastlake wanted to go down. Eastlake wanted to continue to cultivate sort of a a spiritual environment for nuns, right? They actually wanted to disassociate with the church. And so it wasn't really a place that wanted to be vocal about critiquing the church. Um, and so that disconnect I knew was just unworkable for me. And so I resigned, um, with the intention of focusing on together in this at the time, but really starting to morph that into this idea of church clarity. Um, and, and then I was going to run for local politics, which is a whole different part of the story. Uh, but yeah, so that was, that was what caused me to to really know that I needed to move on. I was really passionate yeah. about this, this work of speaking to the church in, in, in a way that I felt like I was called to, to speak to the church. Let's talk about church clarity. Let's talk about that. And I mean, this in a, in a way we've been talking about it for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. we've been yep. talking about that. This is something that means a lot to you. Like you, you have put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into your career, into making it clear what churches stand for, you know? Yeah. Um, so how, just give us the elevator pitch as far as like what the mission of church clarity is and how, if someone hasn't heard of it, um, what, how it evaluates churches and that sort of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. in a nutshell, basically our mission is to clarify the actively enforced policies of churches. Um, now all those words are very carefully selected and important because, um, there's a lot of, um, misconceptions and, and there's a lot of, there's a knee jerk desire to sort of, um, make it what you want it to be because it's actually a, a pretty powerful tool because what we've done is we've created a database of churches and we've listed them based on their level of clarity and how they communicate the, these policies, uh, and specifically their public facing policies. So how their websites, um, uh, describe their approach right now, specifically LGBTQ policies. Mm-hmm. So will they, will they marry? Will they hire? Will they officiate um, weddings of LGBTQ people? And then we, we give them a score uh, based on their level of clarity first and foremost. Uh, and we also give them a designation uh, as far as if they're affirming or not affirming. Um, we also allow for churches to be scored as actively discerning because again, if the whole point is clarity, then a perfectly clear, um, uh, posture publicly is to say we are in the we are in the process of actively discerning what our policies are. We understand that there is a transition period happening right now, and so we are actively discerning, and we will deliver clarity by X date. Those are the those are the parameters. Um, so our goal isn't it's explicitly not to ch- to try to change anybody's mind. So try try to uh, 
convince people that we're right about our theology and they're wrong. Our, our ask is basically, listen, let's just put our cards on the table. Um, mm -hmm. Here's what, if someone comes up to you and asks, will you officiate uh, my wedding? I'm gay. What is your answer to that question is really all we're talking about. I don't care what your theology is, what you believe about the Bible, you know, if the rapture is real or not, none of that stuff is relevant to church clarity. It's your actively enforced policies. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned before uh, how ambiguity is something that is in and of itself harmful or opens up the door to harm to LGBTQ people when they enter the doors of a church. Um, and I, I know you gave one example of that within Eastlake, but what are some other ways in which ambiguity is something that needs to be done away with, especially in relation to people in at-risk communities, um, which you've started out with is LGBTQ people because they are at risk um, and could be prejudiced against. So how does ambiguity um, create a, a, an opportunity for harm, essentially? Yeah. Yeah. So when I talk about ambiguity, um, it's important to, uh, to say that it's, it's about the systems, the ambiguity of the systems and the policies. So we're not talking about people. Um, and that's another misunderstanding that's pretty common is like, oh, you're, you know, if you do this and people who are, you label as unaffirming are going to be called bigots or whatever. And I'm just like, first of all, um, why would you care what people call you? Right. So that's a, that's an interesting thing to push back on. Second of all, we're not talking about people. We're talking about how their beliefs actually inform their policies. And so, um, ambiguity is hurt, hurtful because, it's misleading. It's bait and switch. It's don't ask, don't tell. It's all these uh, sort of environments that are made to feel safe when in reality they are, um, they are, they're not safe. They're actually, they're the opposite of safe. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you say to someone, you're welcome here. And then they invest three, five, 10 years of their lives um, in building community. there, getting to know people, money, volunteering all of it only to find out later that you're you know not going to let them be on staff or you're not going to officiate their wedding um, that's harmful that's that's really really harmful mm -hmm. yeah as far as um as far as the ways in which you you're you're looking at the clear statements or or the level of clarity of statements on public church websites um does that look to the sort of theological, like, uh, you know, some churches are like who we are and what we believe. And then, you know, they've got their, their state and they might have a little blurb about, about their desires and values and who we are. And then what we believe is like, whether they believe in inerrancy or whatever, is, are those the sorts of pages that, that you look at when you're evaluating a site? Yeah, so we look at the entire website. We look, we scour scour the internet basically because uh, even if we find sort of like a, an external article or something that alludes to a policy, um, we'll still score it, but it just might be unclear because in order for it to be clear, we want it in those primary pages that you're talking about who we are. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's just kind of like what, why um, wouldn't you just put that right there? It's obviously something that a lot of people are interested in knowing about you. And mm -hmm. so this desire to conceal, uh, uh, whether intentionally or not, by the way, that's we're, we don't care about that. It's right. 
It's just, it's just unclear. Sometimes it's undisclosed. That's one of our scores. Um, and, uh, we're coming out with a, um, a badge system too, that churches can adopt where they can, uh, just opt to say, we're going to put the church clarity verified, uh, badge on our website. And that will be sort of the standard of clarity. So our, our mission, our holistic mission is to create a new standard of clarity that, um, churches, we all kind of can speak the same language, um, in terms of what we're talking about. But specifically how we score. It was uh, a, a great conversation to go down the road with, uh, with two, two of my co-founders, uh, uh, Sarah New and, and Tim Schrader. Sarah specifically on this, is she's running sort of the database and um, yeah, she, you should have both of them on at some point. I think sure. It'd yeah. be a great fit for this. Yeah. Uh, and as far as, um, as far as that evaluation, um, what can you elaborate again uh, just a little bit more as far as um, how many churches you hope to rank and like the sort of um, the sort of evaluation process do you I know we, we, we touched on this this a little bit but um, but just to <laughs> clarify again um, <laughs> a little bit about the um, about what the what the process and um, because I think this is what some people in just in researching prior to our conversation, like this is something that uh, people, uh, you know, funnily enough, want more clarity about church clarity. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so th- this, yeah. Um, in light of, in light of that, in light of people either maybe not, maybe not doing their own research or looking at your site <laughs> as yeah. thoroughly as they could. Sure. Um, as far as, how how that process works because i think people get um people get sensitive they you mm-hmm. know they feel like you're judging them and mm-hmm. and all that like uh mm-hmm. and you know how weird church people can be about <laughs> judging you know like totally. yeah. you can throw you can judge people all day long but as if you actually put a clear judgment out then <laughs> you've got to reckon mm-hmm. with it yeah <laughs> so uh so yeah it's been super interesting <laughs> It's an, it's a super interesting um, uh, just exp- sociological experiment to to watch unfold. I mean, we launched you know in the last couple of weeks, and the response has just been crazy, yeah. overwhelming, like uh, unbelievable, beyond my wildest imagination. Like I, I always felt like uh, you know I'm onto something unique uh, here. This is a different angle, um, and I have a perspective that's you know uh, has has revealed something that not a lot of people are talking about. Um, and that was further confirmed when I brought, uh, Tim on and, and, you know, he's someone who's been in this world and, and, and experienced the distancing that comes from, you know, you can sort of harvest all of my talents, but someone who's gay, Tim, and if I was gay, um, you only, you hold me at arm's length. And so watching it resonate with him and then bringing Sarah on, uh, same thing. And when they really caught the vision and, and we created this, this website and this tool and really thought through the scoring system. Uh, I remember just taking a step back and being like, um, it's crazy that we even have to do this. It, the idea of clarity and, and any pushback, any criticism, you have to start by recognizing, wait a minute, what? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean you have a problem with churches just being explicit about what they're already doing? Like sometimes actually it boggles my mind that this is, that it's even a thing, first of all, and that it's a phenomenon, like a, a mm. mini phenomenon in, in the church. Like it's super, super simple. Uh, but yeah, for whatever reason, it's like, 
people do feel judged and they feel like you're, you know, I, I don't know. Like I've heard the craziest shit about this. Like, uh, <laughs> one person, Oh, Denny Burke, who is the, uh, the godfather of the Nashville statement. He wrote a blog post, like I think the day we launched or the day after that was like essentially accused us of trying to become a tool for the state is what he said. Uh, and that we are going after the church tax exemption. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, what the hell are you talking about? First of all, because like, I never even thought of that. <laughs> wow. That's, that's like, okay, that's interesting. But also, um, you, like, you think it's that powerful? You think this idea is like someday going to be like lobbying Congress to change tax law? You're giving us way too much credit. We are a two week old startup or whatever. Um, and so uh, just, just watching people's reactions, uh, has been very, very interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know where this is going. Uh, and, and I don't think we need to like, um, the way I've tried to sort of posture this is like literally just get pastors to just tell the truth about what they're already doing. And, mm -hmm. and some of the critics just make that sound like, no, that's too, that's too basic. Like really you're just after clarity. I'm like, like you try it. <laughs> it's, it's actually a lot harder than it sounds. But if, man, if we got clarity that, that there would be some serious ramifications, uh, for the church at large. And I think important ones. And I think it, I think it matters. And I think people's resonance with it, this idea, this question that we've been asking of is clarity reasonable. Um, still does, there's no, there's no valid pushback to that question still this day. There's been a lot of criticism and way more fans, by the way, way more people excited about it than, than critics. Uh, but all, all the criticism is just like, you, you missed it. You missed the whole thing of what we're trying to do and the issue we're trying to address. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should probably disclose and, I, and I'll yeah, we're actually, going no, I'll actually disclose, uh, you know, and I'll disclose this at the beginning too. I am an advocate for, I am listed on <laughs> church clarity. I am an advocate. I, I think it's pretty clear from my body of work through this podcast <laughs> where I stand, but, um, but regardless, um, one of the things also that I, um, that I, I do want to touch on and, and you actually brought this up before we, before we started recording was the sort of disconnect, um, that we've seen between evangelicalism where, um, where you and I both come from and sort of mainline or progressive, um, branches of, uh, even just at the American church, let alone, you know, the, the, the wider world of Christianity in other parts of the world. Um, because actually, I mean, they do seem just worlds apart, and many of these, many of the mainline churches have already um, reckoned with this, and they had to do it. Like uh, the Anglo, the American Episcopal Church did it in the late '80s, early '90s. Um, the ELCA did it in the 2000s. Um, the Methodists are doing it right now, um, and they're still sort of reckoning with this. But um, for a lot of people, that this matter of clarity um is and i don't necessarily well uh, sure i'll say settled you know like they they are clear like the episcopal church welcomes lgbtq people and that's that's the that is the platform and they're clear on it but you know evangelicalism 
seems to be sort of more weaselly about it. You know, they want to squirm out of a direct answer, which is the Ooh. thing that you're that you're trying to confront directly. And you're not trying to do it in like gotcha. It's just like you put this on your side, yes or no, or unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, so within your experience so far from moving from working in a non-denominational church that started in um, started in progressive evangelical and then, as you said, probably no longer even cares about that label to now being at a mainline, a large mainline influential church in New York City. <laughs> like that's quite the, that's also quite the journey. Um, and you also have some insights into whether these, traditions even talk to one another and mm-hmm. like um is there is there any you know any possibility that they could <laughs> yeah that's a great question so okay this might be a good time to sort of uh finish the part of my story where how i ended up in new york so um so i resigned from east lake <clears throat> I'm, I'm sitting down at my computer, um, getting ready to, to go to work on, on church, church clarity, re, like reimagine together in this, which is the organization that morphed into church clarity and is now partnered. Um, and I get distracted on Facebook, like, like people do. Right? <laughs> and, um, I see a post from Amy Butler who, you know, I had that one interaction with three years prior, uh, and she posted for a brand new position that she just created called the Director of Strategic Partnerships and Innovation. And uh, I just quit my job <laughs> with no real, <laughs> no, no real plan, actually. Like, I'm going to make a nonprofit organization, like, be successful. That was my plan, and it was not a good one. Uh, but it, it – uh, so I wasn't, like, job hunting or anything. But when I read Amy's post, I kid you not like every single word of it resonated the job description it was like whoa that's crazy uh that's me that describes me perfectly like talking about someone who is sort of thinking outside of the box and could occupy a minister ministry role that's also a business role like it's my whole story in one job description and it was another one of those moments in my life where i just was like I felt like i had a moment of clarity where it was like whoa it looks like i'm moving to new york city just by reading that, like literally before I talked to my wife about how crazy that sounds, like thinking about, you know, do I even qualify for this job knowing what it, you know, what it pays, all that kind of stuff and what it meant, the disruption that it meant, but just feeling like, wow, that's next. That's what's next. Um, and it kind of brought everything full circle, right? That, that, I, uh, that odd encounter with them in 2000 with Riverside in 2014 on the same trip that we're talking about inclusion and how that's threaded through, this whole story, how I don't have a plan. How I'm reading this right now, um, you know, where I'm like deconstructing everything again because Trump's president, and you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to publish this letter. Uh, Religion dispatches ended up publishing that letter to Judah, um, and so I'm like trying to figure out like wh- 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 what I'm trying to do with my life. So, ended up getting that job, going now I work at Riverside, and feeling like, yeah, there's no, there is no connection between the two. It, Mainline, the mainline church has largely had a posture towards evangelicals of like, that's the sibling we don't really, nah, they're like the black sheep of the family. We don't really talk about them or talk to them for that matter. Um, and I always just felt like that's weird, right? Like, uh, why, why not? And they're, you're all, you're all claiming like the same narrative. You're claiming the same story. You're, you read out of the same book. 
um, yeah, you're really different, but like you gotta acknowledge each other. Um, so I've been, and it's, I've only been like five months at that. Right. But I'm, I'm like really, really curious to see where this goes because one thing with church clarity is, um, I always considered it an evangelical problem, this ambiguity thing, but because of the way that we've set up the scoring, which is primarily, um, crowdsourced churches. So we're, we're going based off of demand, whatever people submit, like, Hey, please score this church. Um, that's what we're scoring. We started with, you know, a, a hand selected 24 churches. So some, some of the more visible ones that were across the spectrum. But after that, it was all, it's all crowdsourced. And what we're seeing is the alarming number of mainline churches being submitted. Um, and so there's a, I mean, it's like 50, 50, it seems like, um, and just in a couple weeks, we've had over a thousand submissions. Wow. Uh, you know, a couple hundred advocates like you. Thank you, by the way. We appreciate your support and your advocacy. Um, and it's it's just in, it, to me, it's pointing to um, how much we actually have in common uh, across all denominations. Mm-hmm. The church, the body of Christ, right, is actually a real thing that transcends these denominational structures and uh, even even church like plant structures where. These are the, the autonomous sort of evangelical churches that kind of run like corporations and do their own thing like we did. Um, there's something that we're all saying that's that's similar. And that's what's really, really compelling about church clarity right now is, is there is there a commonality enough to where actually this thing could be a form of, of uniting the church in, in a lot of ways, as opposed mm-hmm. to what we get accused of, which is how does this bring unity. This is divisive and all that stuff. And I'm like, I totally disagree with that. I think, Hey, we're already divided. Um, but B like, I actually think this, this would unify people because once we get our cards on the table, right? Like then we can actually have a conversation about why you think what I believe is wrong and vice versa. We actually don't have very many productive conversations like that right now because we don't know where you stand. Like people want to do this dance and pretend to be something that that they're not and try to espouse something that they, that they don't hold um, really in the name of protecting their little empires that they've built. And this comes all the way full circle back to my moment earlier of like me hating money, that, that word that I felt like I, I received, like that's so true now of me, man. Like the money that has corrupted and co-opted the church. And this is across the board. This is mainline evangelical. It's so gross and it's, I hate it. I really, really do. If there's one thing that you just like, you want to get me fired up about something, it's how the church um, misleads people really um, into structuring their entire life, their family structure, the way that they think about the world, how many kids they have. I mean, for me, it was like how early I got, how quick, how eager I was to get married really because you can't have sex before you're married. Right. Um, um, I really wanted to have sex with my girlfriend at the time, my wife now. And so just it informs so much in the name of money, right? Like the, and this is sort of the, the kicker here is like ambiguity exists because of money. That's the only reason. I mean, it's the only logical reason. It's the only thing I can think of because when you say even, well, we want to like have build conversations. We want to have these conversations case by case. What you're really saying is we want to make sure not to lose people. Mm-hmm. So I just have a real, I just have a real problem with that. Um, 
I think I think it's I think it's a big I think it's a big problem. Money, the way that we talk about money, the way we handle money, uh, the way that money informs our decision making, it prevents us from doing what's right. It prevents us from speaking out against injustice. Even the whole tax credit or tax exemption, like fear, it's like it reveals something, right? But that's what you're you read about church clarity, and you're like, oh my god, they're going to take away my tax credit. I'm like, what are you? What are we doing? Right? Sometimes I just look at the whole church, and I'm like, yo, 81% of evangelicals voted for Trump. That's a problem. We should wake up every day being like, what are we going to do about this? This is a problem. Um, it's an emergency right now, right? And the mm-hmm. fact that it's the fact that we don't treat it like an emergency is, I think, um, really telling. And it's shame on us for for not. Um, being more aggressive with un- un- unrooting the unhealth um, within our own confines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, <laughs> I, just, I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> so, uh, it, sorry but, to rant there. For a oh second. no, that's that's perfect. I think I think you really speak to something there as far as um, you know the way in which the way in which religion is a some many churches are run like corporations and just in the way in which a, uh, you know, like a company doesn't want to have a provocative in a negative way, like ad campaign. They don't want to have something, you know, you, you don't want to have a tone deaf Kylie Jenner protest ad like Pepsi did, you know, like that, mm-hmm. that really backfired on them and rightfully so. And mm-hmm. you don't want to like, and if you state your, state your beliefs that harm people publicly and clearly, yeah, you're going to lose money. Like, because there's, there's, there's going to be gay people or people that love gay people in that crowd. Like, yeah. yeah. And then that, that is a loss of revenue. Um, right. So, but yeah, unlike that, Pepsi, that is very telling. Unlike Pepsi though, we have a spiritual obligation to help guide sort of the moral compass yeah. of the, of the world. Like that's what the church and right. faith, and religion in general is supposed to be doing. Right. And so when, when we, when we sacrifice our witness in the name of money, then it's like, forget about like Pepsi. We're, we do the world a, a disservice right. when we, when we do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm super excited about, um, about what you've started and your, your journey and to use an evangelical term, you know, your journey, your, your life story is very, is very interesting. And, um, and it's, I think you're getting a response because you're hitting a nerve, like, mm. and you're, you're addressing a, a need, especially for, again, the LGBTQ community, which it's, which faces prejudice within religious communities. Um, and that's just a matter of fact. And you're speaking to that. You're speaking and you're getting people aware that even if they, you know, you get their dander up about something, it's because it's because they realize that this matters. Like, mm-hmm. and, they, and they're being faced with it. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm glad that it's getting the attention because it is. Um, it is a worth, a very worthwhile and admirable goal. So, Thanks, man. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate all your support and, and um, just the work that you're doing. I mean, just the, even the name Exvangelical, the first time I read it, I'm like, yes, that's me. <laughs> that's, that's my people. Um, I think it's, it's really important, the community that you're creating and, and um, like really, really grateful for your voice because I think it matters. I mean, those, this is a you're, you, you have like this orphanage of, of people who have been shunned by uh, by their community and you're creating a space for them. That's, that's pretty unique. So 
So yeah. appreciate you yeah. and, and your support. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, where can people learn more about Church Clarity? Where can they follow you online? Um, yeah. Let's just plug so, it all. Let's plug it all. Sure. Church, <laughs> churchclarity.org uh, is the site. So check that out. Become an advocate. Submit a church name if you want. That's how you interact with it. Uh, check out the database. Um, you can find I'm, I'm on Twitter. I love Twitter. That's kind of my go-to. It's uh, at G McHale. And um, yeah, holler if you have questions. Like I love questions. One of, one of my biggest things is like, why do pastors not answer questions? It's so weird. You get up and you talk publicly. Like you should be ready for <laughs> questions. So yeah. please ask questions and hit us up with feedback. Awesome. George, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, man. Thank you.